to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Abby Bangzer, who is a senior test engineer on Moose Platform Engineering Team and runs Coffee Ops in London. Abby Bangzer, welcome to Maintainable. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. So let's dive right into it. Given your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of well-maintained software? So I've been thinking about this, knowing I was going to be joining you, and I've listened to some of the past guests and agree with so many things people have said. But one angle that's been particularly relevant to me recently has been around building and kind of wanting to change code bases. So I think the ability to have a pipeline which you trust to run tests and you trust to deploy your software in kind of an automated way is so key to having faith that you can make small changes and small improvements to the code base. And and that is so key to continuing to maintain that over time. And so once you have this pipeline you can trust, that desire to still use it and push small changes, that campground rule around doing cleanup as you go is I've noticed something that kind of ebbs and flows with different applications over time. And I think it makes a really big difference no matter how old the code base is. If people are still interested in making improvements to it, it is a lot nicer to maintain. And what do you think are a few challenges for software engineering teams to get to themselves to an ideal state where they have that trusted continuous pipeline kind of set up? Do you find that teams have to bring in someone that knows how to do that really well or is like send someone off on like a mission to go figure out how this stuff connects together or is it usually what have you seen work well for folks number one is just actually codifying all the steps so i've now done with a handful of different organizations a walkthrough of what is actually the path to production and making sure that you know even if you need to go talk to Janet in finance before you can, you know, push this change to calculations or you need to talk to someone over in operations before you make a change to that server, that all of that is something that you can see if you're going to make a change to the service. And so we've done kind of paper walkthroughs of the process and said, so now would I be able to know, okay, why not? And, and kind of add those in. And then once we've created those, I love putting them in as manual steps in whatever our CI pipeline is to have placeholders that say, here is where this manual step is occurring. And when that is complete, you can click the button and continue to the next one. And that really helps to visualize the parts that are bottlenecks and the parts that you can optimize. And so are you like in your CI, so there's buttons or something for specific people to push to move to the next stage of that process? Yeah, absolutely. And whether or not it has those kinds of regulations and controls on it for, you know, this person must sign off on this stage, or it's more just a placeholder for whoever's trying to deploy their change to production to say, I've done the the task that's necessary here. It depends on the, probably the domain that you're working in, the organization you're working in, that kind of thing. So. And so within your organization, are the developers that work on features responsible for making sure it ends up in production at some point versus kind of push it up into the ether and wait for like a regular deployment schedule to happen? Yeah. So there was one older application that was on a two-week release cycle up until kind of early September. 
but the rest of our applications all had some version of continuous delivery or deployment, depending on the risk levels and the team's confidence in their pipelines. And now we can actually say that 100% of our pipelines are continuous delivery to production. And that means that the committing developer does follow through all the way through to deployment and validation in production. So it's really great. And out of curiosity, does your team, do the people that are working on, say, new features or updates, that they, are they also working on the front lines of providing like operations support? Yeah, you know, that, that nirvana state. Um, so we only have one team that carries a pager, and that's our platform engineering team. And that is the team I'm actually a part of. But I would say that our software developers, while they don't carry a pager, are extremely involved in being aware of what's happening in production and helping us in any cases where things go wrong. So obviously things go wrong out of hours sometimes, but very rarely with kind of a change uh, based on a change that was made. And since we're co-located in London, often when things are going wrong in production because of a software change, our developers are all around and able to help us identify and triage those issues. So Nice. Does your team use the word or the metaphor of technical debt at all? It definitely comes up. I wouldn't say that it's something we talk about in a calculated way, but definitely comes up when we're having discussions. And I like to ask different people this question. Is like, how do you and or maybe your team, like when it does come up, what do you typically refer to with that? So I think with our team, there's probably two categories. And I'd say this is not just for my team, but I've seen it around the industry as I chat with people and work with people. There's the category of debt as in intentionally taken on risk or cost associated with making a decision to say we're not going to do this piece of work right now or we're not going to optimize this solution right now. But I would say also it's often used just to indicate that we're unhappy with past decisions, which is sometimes unfair to our past selves, since often we are the ones that have made those decisions we're no longer happy with. But I guess in the end, they both have the same impact where it's code that we feel is not doing what we would like it to do and potentially hard for us to prioritize improving alongside other requests. What do you believe are some mistakes that developers make when they're trying to advocate for improving some previous decisions in in code or technical decisions or needing to optimize the code base? I'd say one mistake would be assuming that the decision was in some way, quote unquote, stupid or unintentional or ignorant or, you know, something very... um, actively negative about the decision that was made, when in reality, it's often the best decision that could be made given the constraints at the time. And sometimes I've seen us look at something, decide that makes no sense as it is today. But when we go to change it, it turns out we run into some of those same constraints that maybe were less obvious on a quicker review of a past implementation. So I'd say that's one major pitfall. A second pitfall, I'd say, is around prioritizing the work, not being aware of how valuable data on the impact of that change is in helping organizations prioritize improvements to tech debt. So 
you know, is this something that you run into once a year and it takes you a few hours and that's annoying? Or is this something that every day it takes you an extra 10 minutes? You know, those are two very different scenarios and you can often make a case when you look into that. What types of metrics maybe in your specific team track and or measure? So we follow a lot of the things that come from the state of DevOps report and accelerate. So using things like cycle time to keep an eye on the size of work that we're trying to tackle is really been helpful for us. We also look at deployment frequency, which I think we use in multiple ways, both to see changes out to production, but also to see that confidence in our pipeline. So we have all of our pipelines running on a schedule so that we know that they're able to be run at any moment if we need to make a change to the software or for our case, the infrastructure. So that's been really a good improvement recently. And we also keep track of mean time to recovery, which we are finding how many interesting nuggets you can get out of that with identification of a problem being a part of that mean time to recovery, but also, of course, triage of what's causing the problem and fixing the problem being all a part of that larger mean time to recovery metric. You touched on something related to, you know, when you're talking about deployment frequency and said that you also have a scheduled, what, what's the distinction there? Is it that there, when things get pushed to a certain branch, things get automatically deployed, but you also have a deployment happen regardless? Yeah, absolutely. So we work on master is what is deployed out to production. I know different teams use different words. We have a lot of different services that we work on, which means that we aren't working on all of them every day or every week or even every month. And we were running into problems where all of a sudden we'd have a story come up, whether it be a defect or an enhancement, and we wouldn't actually be able to make that improvement until we debugged the fact that the deployment wasn't working. And that might be because we had, for example, latest on some of our dependencies, and all of a sudden that upgrade has changed our ability to deploy. Or it could be, you know, something else around, for example, migrating of where our artifacts are stored meant that URLs were out of date, things like that. So what we've done to try and mitigate that is we said every week we want our master pipeline to run for every project that we're in charge of. And that will give us insight into whether the pipeline runs green. And even if we decide that we aren't going to pay attention to it, that that's not something that's in our priorities for this week or even this month. When we do come around to needing to work on that code base, it would give us a point in time where that started to fail. And so looking for hmm, what dependencies updated on that day or in that week, we decided would be valuable. So luckily, we haven't run into that case yet where we've had to decide to reprioritize this pipeline or something else. But we said either way, that'd be helpful. You know, I can speak from my own experience there is this is kind of fascinating approach there because it wasn't that long ago. I think a couple of weeks ago, we have a project where we haven't been working on it that often in the last few months. And we went to, you know, one of our junior developers is working on a pretty small little feature and, you know, follow the deployment process instructions. And then the things crashed. And we're like, he's like, I don't know what, what happened. And it was because of like a different application got deployed through that process and that hadn't been deployed in like three months. Basically, it all came down to a node module got yanked at some point and we didn't know about it until, you know, they triggered the deployment for something else. And 
then you end up going down this big rabbit hole of like, now you're fixing everything, trying to figure out like, is it the changes we made or that seems like a really valuable kind of thing to explore there. Yeah. It's the same thing as when you go into a new code base or, or you go in to make a new change. The first thing that I like to do is run all the tests and make sure that they actually pass before I try and put in a new change. Because the number of times I've tried to chase my tail on a failing test when I've made a change, and then it turns out that was a failing test that I hadn't realized had been committed into master. And when I pulled up it, I got the failing change. So <laughs> that's one way to, to stop us from doing that. So given that Moo has been around for, say, over 12 years now, and we've printed many of our own business cards with them. So thanks for all your participation in, in that. What types of challenges have you been and your team been working on focusing on and tackling? Yeah, so I've been with Moo now for just over a year. And so the team I'm a part of is called Platform Engineering. And it was kind of created about two years ago when there was a need to move from a data center into the cloud. This was because the data center was going to have a power outage planned time and we didn't know what we would do. (laughs) And so as with... To be honest, every company I've ever come across, the way you move to the cloud is having a deadline like that. And this put a deadline in place and the team managed to move all of the services out of that data center and into the cloud. But given a deadline, that meant a lot of them were done in kind of a lift and shift is the term used, where we took the VMs that were running in the cloud and we basically created Ansible built servers on EC2s and AWS. And that was a great solution for those services. But then what comes next for platform is kind of the question. And what was being talked about from tech leadership at the time was trying to improve our cycle time and deployment frequency by breaking down a large monolith that was a large part of our tech And to do that, we wanted to be able to help teams move faster. So the platform team put up a Kubernetes cluster and produced a way for software teams to create new services easily so that as they identified domains to break apart, they could move them into this cluster in a kind of predefined way pretty easily with monitoring and all of those niceties in there. And that's kind of where we are today, where we are still moving pieces of that monolith into, we call them right-sized services in the Kubernetes cluster. And so we as a platform team help teams with that, as well as service the cluster and improve its offerings with things on our backlog associated with rolling deploys and canaries and things like that, as well as still servicing some of the servers on kind of Ansible built machines. I think in one of our previous conversations, you had mentioned there was a, an effort for monorepoing. Yes, that was an exciting project we did this year, actually. So we have a, I mentioned the monolith that we're trying to break apart as we see opportunities. And it used to be in multiple different repositories. And so we'd have a repository for the PHP code, which was the front end. We had a repository for some Java services that operated as kind of the middleware backend for it. And we had a repository that held the database and changes for the database in it. And actually, we had a fourth repository, which held the configuration for deployment. And what we were finding is that the deployment process was quite complex. 
in that you had to do them in a right order because otherwise we would serve traffic to front-end features that were not yet backed up by back-end or database changes. And so we decided the ability to make an atomic commit where you were able to introduce the new database field as well as the API change and UI change that leveraged it was important for kind of safety and speed of changes. And so we did a migration of four different repositories into a single mono repo maintaining all the history because this is pretty old code and some of our documentation is only in commit history. And we now have configuration, database, front-end and back-end code in a single repository. So when you, when you made that change to kind of go toward a monitor, and I, I'm thinking, you know, again, I have we have a couple of different client projects we work on where we have like, one for example, we have a Ruby on Rails API backend and a React app in separate repositories. But usually when we make changes because of the way that the previous developers coupled things, it's like you have to make changes in both repos anyways. And so we're now, we have two separate deploys that have to happen in parallel to line up and two different repositories to do it in. And it just feels like a lot of extra work. So that was very much where we were. And I still believe that there should be a way to do expand and contract kind of changes where you introduce an additive change to the back end, which then starts to get used by the front end in a future commit and then remove the old back end changes, the old front end and old back end and so forth. But that is a style of coding that takes both practice and buy-in because it does take some time. And so having the atomic commit gave us the opportunity to do that or to at least be able to make the commit across all three and not have broken pipelines because of timing of releases and things. We'll be back with my interview with Abby in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for the kind words, for those that have taken the time to write a review on Apple Podcasts and or on Stitcher and other places where you can write reviews of a podcast. I also really appreciate those that have been sharing links on LinkedIn and Twitter, Facebook, what have you. So keep it up. I much appreciate it. So I have a question for you. If you are someone who has been listening to a number of these episodes and you're thinking that there's some topics or follow-up questions you really wish I would have asked of a guest, feel free to shoot me an email at Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm and I'd love some unsolicited advice. So it's going to open the door there. Also, thanks again. I think this episode will be posted around my 40th birthday. So hope you're enjoying it. And now back to my interview with Abby Bangser. Are there any other kind of unexpected challenges that have cropped up since you've implemented that? Yeah, I would say awareness of the pain. <laughs> so there's a lot of talk with our development teams about the cost of running the monolith pipeline. For context, this took us a little over two hours when we first created the monolith pipeline, and it now is down to a bit under an hour and a half, but still more than a cup of tea. There's a lot of frustration that people can make quicker changes previously by just deploying the one thing they had to deploy. But what we're finding is those quicker changes were done kind of in an out-of-scope manner that not everyone understood and that weren't very easy to track on success and failure of. And so actually, this is that 
maintainable point I made earlier about having a pipeline that actually articulates its path to production has empowered more people to be able to make changes to this code base, even if it has made some cost on the most productive developers or that, you know, knew how to work around the previous state of things. So democracy of code bases. <laughs> when you think about developers kind of, you know, they're working on stories and sometimes maybe they're enhancements or new features, what have you. How does your team go about organizing work that's maybe not being asked by the business necessarily like or stakeholders, but by the development team themselves in terms of like, okay, we need help with the the pipeline process. Is there any, do other teams request feature or stories of your team? Is that how that works there? Or are you kind of creating your own stories as a team for the most part? Yeah, so we have a bit of both. The pipeline is owned by all of tech. And so we do follow a DevOps model in the sense that the teams own their own pipelines, though we at Platform might have some experience that they might lean on or ask questions of here and there. So what's great about MooTech is that there's a lot of support for understanding you almost have to move slower to move faster sometimes and, and investment is important. And so we do have a percentage of time that's allocated to technical improvements in order to support business growth and, and faster technical implementations. I think that time is set at 50%. And I would say it's not a hard line for any team. And it's something which kind of can change depending on deadlines for business things and kind of ebb and flow as you go. But it is built in as a conversation topic, which is a big help. Nice. So I'm imagining a lot of the tools and that you're using are constantly getting updated with new versions. You know, I'm assuming you're relying on a lot of open source technology. How does your team go about handling those updates themselves? Do you, do you rely on the pipeline to do that? Or do you have regular, like, do you have people that are responsible for making sure to check to see, hey, there's a new major version coming out. We need to start planning for this. Do you have much process around that? Or is that kind of a, you know, someone mentions it in Slack at some point or whatever you're using and be like, oh, I heard that this is a new version is coming out in a couple of weeks. Do we start planning for that? Do we create a ticket? How does that actually work in your environment? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a tough one. So the ones that we never have to worry about keeping an eye on as a team are the tools our developers use because they're great at shouting out about the new cool thing that's coming out in GitLab or in Kibana or something. So we tend to know about those upgrades based on our customers being the internal dev teams. As for our own tooling, it's honestly something that's quite challenging. It was a task I took on a while ago to try and extract out where are we on some of these Docker images and on these packages and things. And it's there was no easy way to get an idea of what we were downloading and, and where all of our Docker images were and all that. So I would say it's not as scientific as anyone would like, but it is something that we follow kind of the campground idea on. And as you're coming in and looking at things, you're looking to upgrade and make note of anything that you identify you can't upgrade for some reason, that becomes a story on the backlog to say, let's put the work in so that we can. All right. Another kind of DevOps related topic. I know that you, you've you talked a bit about uh, observability and say in production. And so what sorts of things are the development teams there trying to observe in production? And I'm assuming outside of bugs appearing and things like that, what else is What's what's important if, if if there's a developer listening that's heard the word observability but hasn't actually really thought about how to like maybe even explore how that could benefit their team? 
what is Moo doing with that information and what, what information may be? It's a journey that we're on. And I would say the key to that journey is to understanding what normal looks like. I think when you say, is it just to look at bugs? It is part of that, the identification and triaging of a defect. But in large part, we'd like to get more and more towards kind of canary releases and moving things out in a gradual way. And I think to do that, you need to be able to put in automated checks around, does it look normal on the canary? And to do that, you're looking at things like traffic and error rates and latencies. But often you're also needing to look at something that's more business oriented as well. So order rates and not just all endpoints, you know, that that might be something you want to look at or access to projects or, you know, other things like that. Each team would have their own business needs to keep track of. So I'd say figuring out what normal is, is what's really key for us. Interesting. So in an e-commerce environment, you're actually able to show, okay, with this new deploy or new version that's going out when we've done this with X percentage of our servers are running up, certain users are hitting the new version of this and 90% are still using the previous version. And you can see, is, is there still some consistency before you roll it out to the rest of the folks? So that way you kind of, or if it's better, you know, that that's a good thing to know as well. Even so, better, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think this is still sort of aspirational for us in a lot of ways, but it's a groundwork need is to have some sort of understanding of what should be checked, like what would be alarming if it went up or down due to a release. And so that's what our teams are currently working on is figuring that out so that we can do this automated rollout of stuff. Is uh, Moo hiring? Yes. Yes, we are. I think I know that we're looking for a new engineer for the platform engineering team, which would be great to have some interesting people join us. And we do operations and DevOps work and platform engineering and then I think we also are looking for some Java developers as well. So a bunch of roles if you check out our website. All right. Well, we'll include a link to the career site on Moo in the show notes. So let's imagine that there's a few developers listening and feel like their concerns haven't been heard by their product owners or managers in terms of improving some of the uh, areas of the code base that have been slowing them down for a long time. And they ask, and they've asked a number of times, they feel like they've asked a number of times and have heard, not right now, not yet. We'll come back to that later. A few too many times, either with their managers or maybe even their peers. And so so they've kind of given up and become maybe maybe worried that they're becoming a little complacent and not going to bother. Maybe it's no longer worth asking for. What advice might you offer them so that maybe today they can go, maybe rethink that a little bit and reapproach it one more time at least before they go decide to look for a new job? <laughs> yeah, honestly, I think that's how a lot of people felt about this monolith refactor that we did. I've heard lots of people say that they had talked about doing an automated pipeline instead of a manual two-week regression for years before it got done. And I would say the thing that got us over the edge or over the line on it was really being data-driven on it, being able to identify how much time we were spending each week and each month in order to do these releases, as well as looking at the risk that we were taking on because of the large scale of changes that we were doing in those two-week releases. So when we were able to put the numbers together and showcase the amount of people that had to put effort into each release, the amount of time each of those people was putting in, as well as the correlation between large-scale releases and potential outages, actual outages, and just in general 
risk, that became quite an obvious thing to work on. So it was a little bit lucky in that we have this platform team that it can prioritize this tech-wide change as well. So I think realistically, that was a big key as well, was not trying to get eight or nine different product teams that all use this code base to try and collaborate on it. Instead, say, we want to invest as a tech organization in this. We're going to give it to one team and that team has the time set aside to work on it was a second key. Nice. All right. So I have a just a few quick last questions for you. What non-software development related book do you find yourself most often recommending to people in our industry? Right now, the one that's been the most on my mind has been uh, Deep Work, which I read a little while ago from Cal Newport, because I find, especially now that I work in an organization that's very Slack-driven, that I'm just perpetually looking for the next message. Like I find myself waiting for a message to come in every once in a while when I'm having a hard time focusing on the thing I'm trying to solve. And so figuring out how to take time away and actually stop and deeply work on some stuff is definitely on my to-do list. <laughs> we live in this interesting world now where there's constantly channel messages coming from everywhere. And like, how do you filter that out and build again to some of that deeper work? Uh, I've heard of that book. I've not read it myself. So I'll definitely include a link to that. And where can listeners learn more about you and your thoughts on software development online? Yeah. So Twitter, like most people, I'm on A underscore Bangzer. That's really where I'll put anything I'm working on, including if I manage to get blog posts out, which I have a blog that is testerbychoice.wordpress.com because I am a test engineer working in kind of operations and things. And some people wonder, well, then why don't you switch titles? Why would you choose to be a tester? And I think being a tester is great. So that's awesome. <laughs> I, in a rage of fury a couple of years ago, took that domain and love it. So, Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Abby. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This has been fantastic. I love listening. So thanks for having me. Oh, 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 oh.